What a wonderful, wonderfully peaceful peace as we continue our study of Sabbath this summer. Those of you who've been with us this summer know we have been looking at Sabbath, this day of rest. Each week in, in worship, uh, Sabbath is as a theme, a commandment we find all over Scripture, and yet it's one almost entirely overlooked, or, or, or really we just don't know a whole lot about, which is a painful irony in a society where I think we all can agree uh, there is a sense of constantly being on the go and having to do and needing to do and so what is the Sabbath? What is this gift of rest our God has for us? We've looked at Sabbath and relationship to work and grace and joy and others. And today, Sabbath and its relationship to justice. Let us go to our God in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Holy God, we give thanks that you have given us this day and given us your word. And we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might receive this, your word, as life-giving, as shaping, convicting, encouraging, and ultimately molding us into your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From the Old Testament, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills... From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then over into the New Testament, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Jesus here is in the middle of a host of teachings among the Pharisees, the religious leaders, specifically about money. He's recently just spoken on the impossibility of serving God and and money, something we looked at a little bit even last week in the service of worship, and now moves to this parable that is a parable in three acts, a story on earth, and then two exchanges that happen in the realm of eternity. Specifically, this is an apocryphal parable, meaning what is stated by Jesus is not meant to be a teaching on the realities of heaven and hell, so much as it's meant to be a pathway that might invite the living, call the living into more urgent action and truth. Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was being tormented. He he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and, and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and 
Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us. He said, then Father, I... I beg you to send to my father's house Lazarus, for for I have five brothers, that, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Purple. He wears purple, the color of royalty, of wealth. Fine linens, fine undergarments. The rich man, he feasts sumptuously. Now, Jesus has quite recently told the parable of the prodigal son in Luke's gospel. It's just one chapter back, chapter 15. And so his hearers, they're not too far removed from this scene where you remember the father clothes the son in the finest robe and and, and new sandals and throws this huge feast. But that was this one-time massive party celebrating the son's return. The rich man here, he does it every day. His wealth is stunning. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with whatever fell from the rich man's table. Others from the community undoubtedly laid this man at the gate of the rich man every day. There's an ongoing regular sense to Lazarus being laid there. And this was certainly a practice of the day for those ailing or those invalid. And they did this because the rich man had the means to do something for the man, for his situation. And, and all of them knew the law. The man knew the law, Deuteronomy 15. If, if any is poor among you and your fellow Israelites, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Act 2 of the parable begins and both are now dead. The rich man in Hades, the poor man by Abraham's side. The rich man in his torment, you heard he cries for mercy. If only my my tongue might be cooled amid all of these flames. Child. Abraham makes it clear this is a child of Abraham. A child of the covenant. a, A religious man. Child, during your lifetime you received good things and and Lazarus in like manner evil things and now he's comforted and you are in agony and and so what we have is Mary's Magnificat from Luke chapter 1, you recall, where she sings forth, he has filled the hungry with good things but sent the rich away empty. But then this is the real clincher. Abraham goes on... Besides all of this, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed. It is impossible for anyone to go there or or, or there here. No. I mean, no. That's not how Jesus' stories go. 
Jesus is the God of second chances. Jesus is the God of amazing grace. Where is the amazing grace? And besides, what ill did this man really do? So he received many good things, many fine things. Is wealth the unpardonable sin? Well, no. In fact, Father Abraham himself was quite wealthy, if you read his story. Other righteous people in the Old Testament, Job, have wealth. Luke, the author of this gospel, was a physician, meaning in his time he was probably the highest earning disciple of Jesus's, depending on how Matthew the tax collector did year to year. Wealth is not the sin per se. Feasting's not necessarily the problem. The problem is that his luxurious lifestyle consumes his reality every day. Every day, he wears purple and linens. Every day, he feasts sumptuously. Every day, he consumes these things, is consumed by these things with his time, his interest, his focus, his worry. Kenneth Bailey is a Presbyterian scholar who until his recent passing specialized in helping Western Christians understand scripture in its original Middle Eastern context. And he points out to ancient ears, and he points out that to ancient ears, especially Sabbath-oriented Jews who would be hearing this parable, they would have been transfixed on the phrase, every day. This rich man does not observe the Sabbath. Now, we've been looking at the gift of the Sabbath all summer long. And right, one of the great gifts of the Sabbath is the way it is this guaranteed interruption into whatever we may be doing, whatever we may have gotten ourselves into, whatever good or ill, ongoing work and worry. I love how the prophet Isaiah articulates the promise of Sabbath. In returning and rest, we shall be saved. Not in just keep pushing away and doing what you're sure you've got to keep doing. In returning and rest, we shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be our strength. Sabbath permits us to say no to the things that we consume and consume us. No to the things we're sure that need us and the things we think we need. Sabbath permits us to say no that we might return to a rest in God. And see with God's eyes, and be shaped by God's presence and God's will and the things of God's heart and, and be saved. Every day, the rich man has no Sabbath, no place to situate himself in and with God in, in sort of a regular, centered way and, and receive something more of, of the heart of God and, and see all the more readily with the way and rhythm of God and God's eyes and who and what then are in his midst. Instead, every day, it is purple and linens and food. I was convicted about what this kind of reality can mean about a year and a half ago. It was then that Michelle and I decided to try this plan laid out in this book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. As it's sold millions of copies, I imagine you've heard of it. I know I've referenced it in some of this story in, in another sermon. But basically, this book has you go through every single thing you own. Clothing, books, papers, pens, pencils, miscellaneous items, 
special items, photos, I mean all of it. And you're invited to hold and consider each item, ultimately deciding whether to keep it or not. Simple enough. I mean, it might take some time. But this isn't, this isn't calculus or a thesis or a, the strategic planning process. It was grueling. I mean, almost every item I could say, but we might need this one day. Or they had some kind of sentimental value. I remember holding this blue and red swim bag from my days as an assistant coach, uh, swim coach at the high school where uh, I taught in Pasadena, California. It was this bag that I'd used every day for swim practice and I I used on the, the road trip swim meets. It had great memories attached to it. Well, I can't give this away. Michelle looks at me and says, you never use it. Well, that's true. I had other bags that I preferred that were just better suited for the things I needed to do. But it was my swim bag. So you want to keep it so you can look at it? Right again, we, we stored it in the basement. It never came out. It had no purpose. But what we were starting to uncover is how one simple item not only takes up physical space, but heart space. And that's fine. That's natural. We all have special items that reach back into special places. But multiply that by hundreds and even thousands of objects. In fact, the average American household has 300,000 objects. It was incredibly humbling to see everything I owned required some measure of mental energy, required storing, required upkeep, required cleaning, required attention. Every item took up literal space, but also internal space. It took up even energy and angst trying to figure out where to keep or go with all of the stuff. And I was seeing, my goodness, this really adds up. And it's not only that I'm attached to all of my stuff in all these weird ways, but that my stuff had become attached to me. It was not until we forced untold bag loads of clothes, tools, kitchen items, free stuff from all the events, stuff forgotten at the back of the closet, stuff even we'd recently purchased and said, well, that was really not necessary. It wasn't until bags of old and new, valuable and not valuable, all went out the front door and we looked at one another, honestly, for days on end, stunned at how light we felt on the inside. I mean, yeah, the, the space was more open, literally, but, but actually my heart, my mind, was just a, a different openness. Space to hear from God, to see what might be at the gate. Until then, I had no idea how the slow accumulation of stuff, of wealth, occupies more and more space and upkeep and attention, not just without, but within. 
But I probably should have known it, right? I mean, Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is. Where your money goes, that's what's shaping your heart. Where your money is, your stuff is, your treasure is, that's what your heart is paying attention to. That's what is shaping your heart. The rich man's money goes every day to the purple and the linens and the food. And so his heart is full of tending to those things, enjoying those things, keeping up with those things. Things. And since this is his ongoing everyday reality, there, there is no room or energy within the heart to notice or think about or care about anything else. And so if Lazarus is laid day by day at his gate, if every single day someone right there in our family is laid before us, if, if in some kind of ongoing manner someone right next door is laid upon our eyes or our porch, if, if, if in ongoing manners, someone right across the street hungers or, or someone ails right across the workplace or right across the hall. I mean, the rich man, he is but a few feet away every day from Lazarus. But there may as well be an impossible chasm between the two because the rich man's heart is so far removed from being able to have any room to even notice him. The impossible chasm that he knows between Abraham and Hades, honestly, it's just a continuation of what he's chosen in life. And notice he doesn't even ask out of Hades because he can no longer, he can't even conceptualize of that. Then, Father, I I beg you, I beg you, send Lazarus to my father's home, for I have five siblings, or also uh, five brothers, also translated siblings. It may be brothers and sisters. I, I have five siblings that you may warn them so that they won't come to this place of torment. Please, may it not be too late for the siblings. May may it not be too late for the living. We, sisters and brothers, are the siblings. We are the living. Jesus situates the hearer most centrally among these five. And we siblings, we have been given Jesus who came among us and became poor upon the cross. That we might be forgiven and made rich in the eternal mercy of God. We siblings have been given Jesus who is raised from the dead and whose death conquering spirit we are promised animates us, abides in us, assists us to actually hear and see. We siblings have been given Jesus whom we receive in a unique way every Sabbath and thanks be to God, he is the one who promises to set the consumed captives free. And so this Sabbath day, perhaps Jesus shows us just how much certain clutter and wealth has accumulated. Perhaps just how much worries about money or stuff or about taking care of stuff or getting more stuff or worries about property or properties. Just how much we may be far more captive to some of it than we normally would like to admit But on this Sabbath day, a word goes out to the siblings. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. Come, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. 
I wonder what are some of the accumulated bags that we sense God would just have us drop as we enter that rest. And as we start discarding bag after bag at the front door, and we sense that lightness happening, we enter into that rest. And we find our hearts and our eyes revitalized. Look around. What do you see at the gate? Grace Street, Broad Street, Lee Street, Park, Hanover, Grace, Allen, Meadow, Roland, Lombardy, Birch, Ryland. Who do you see? Who are the hungry? Who are the overlooked? Who are the ailing at the front door of our lives? Who, who does the Holy Spirit put before our eyes? And honestly, we, we previously just hadn't had the bandwidth or energy or interest to notice. But this day, this Sabbath day, Presbyterian pastor Tom Toole, he once did a keynote um, He did the keynote for uh, an all-church retreat that I was part of at a church in Decatur, Georgia. And during this one of the sessions where he was leading, he said, Look, congregations, they do these mission studies. They put together vision statements, and those are well and good. I've done a number in my time as a pastor of a variety of congregations. But I continue to find mostly that congregations discover their mission when they finally let the Holy Spirit open their eyes to that which has been laid upon their front porch. Metaphorically or otherwise. The rich man was not called to do all things for all people. He had one person, one hunger, one situation regularly placed at his gate. And of course elsewhere Jesus tells us that you know it it is among those hungry and thirsty, those imprisoned and sick, the stranger and the overlooked, that we actually see Jesus himself. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. And so there, by the way, there is the amazing grace we were looking for in this story. It turns out that the God of second chances, the God of amazing grace, is in this passage. He shows up day by day, hungry with sores. He goes by the name Lazarus. It is no wonder it is that when we return to rest that we find salvation. For in rest, our vision is restored and we see salvation has come. He's standing, knocking at the door or laying at the door, ailing. And don't be deceived by the wounds. Because he's actually looking to minister to us, to love us, to embrace the prodigal siblings who have gone far and created a great chasm caught up in all their stuff. So once more, I ask, who do you see? And is it not the face of Christ himself who is come? In rest we shall be saved. Amen.